on everyone's favorite message board, there is a subreddit called Shower Thoughts. And it's just like epiphanies people have had that, you know, would resemble stuff that you would think of while in the shower. I like the one that says, technically your alarm tone in the morning is your theme song as it starts every episode. No one taught anyone the game of like making races out of raindrops running down a car window, but yet we've all played it. When alarms go off, they are actually turning on. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Thank you so much for tuning back in for yet another week. Uh, another topic. Uh, before we jump into that, touchpoint.health is the website. It's where you can learn more about this show and the others on the network. We point this out every week, but there's a network of a bunch of other shows. I don't even know how many there are now, a dozen of them or so, I guess, of other healthcare related shows that you, the listener, may enjoy. Touchpoint.health, again, you can find out about all of those, the folks that host those shows, the topics, all that kind of fun stuff. While you're there, the TPS report, which is a e-newsletter that comes out every Monday morning, a handful of articles aggregated by the show host, I would encourage you to sign up for that. So those are a couple of good resources there. Special thanks not only to the listeners, but the sponsors for helping make this show and all the other ones possible. Speaking of which, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And read, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Are you ready, Reed? This is the episode that we are actually going to cover blockchain. Two and a half years in the making. Here we go. I almost want to title this episode of the show as the Touchpoint Boys talk about a technology that they're really not that intimately familiar with. Or maybe like, okay, fine, here it is. But nonetheless, I think it's an important topic, and we have a great interview later on in the show today by a gentleman who actually is implementing blockchain in a very practical application in healthcare. So looking forward to that. But before we get there, Reed, I thought it would be good for us, you and I, to maybe share with our audience some of the information we've been doing, the research we've been doing on blockchain itself. 
Absolutely. So let's start with what is blockchain? Definitional content for you from investopedia.com, which is uh, a great domain name. They say blockchain is literally just a chain of blocks. So thanks everybody for coming. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Let's break that down a little bit because the chain is really this, what they call a public database and the blocks are digital information. And so when you combine this digital information into a public database, that is what blockchain is. When we talk about that, it sounds a little too simplistic for the promise of what blockchain could be. So they talk about these blocks, right, on a chain. (laughs) I don't know where they got the name for this. Um, They're made up of actual digital pieces of information. So specifically the article... uh, uh, blockchain explained talks about them having three parts, right? So the blocks, number one, store information about transactions like date, time, financial information, etc. Or the second piece, they store information about who is participating in the transaction. So instead of your actual name, the purchase record without any identifying information, like a digital signature of sorts, uh, sort of like a username. And then lastly, it stores information that distinguishes them from other blocks. So transaction information, date, time, financial stuff, who's doing it, and then how are they distinguished from the other blocks in the chain? And I think the important part is that last piece about it distinguishes it from other blocks because that really relates to the security of blockchain. Each block stores a unique code that's called a hash that allows us to tell it apart from every other block. And it not only includes its own hash, it includes the hash of the block right before it. In order for you to get that data information into your chain, something has to occur. You're transferring some kind of data. But after you transfer that data, you have to verify that. That's the second piece. With blockchain, that job is left up to a network of computers to do that sort of verification. They confirm the details of your transaction. It has to be stored into a block. And then once all of that information has been verified and given that unique code, then it becomes part of the block chain. It sounds like a lot of fancy words for saying that you're just grouping a bunch of data together. (laughs) Yeah, but you can't make like a word out of that. It it can't be like, you know, I specialize in grouping data together. (laughs) It's like I specialize in blockchain. You know, I'm a blockchain consultant, not a data grouping consultant. You know, it it just works better. Well, built into that, though, is there's a lot of security around it. Because of its uniqueness of the hash and the data that's on it, it makes it difficult to change the data without that being tracked. Let's talk about the privacy and security of a blockchain. So let me ask first, Reed, is blockchain private? The definitional answer in this article says that anyone can view the contents of a blockchain. But users can also opt to connect their computers to a blockchain as nodes. And although transactions on the blockchain are not completely anonymous, personal information about users is limited to their digital signature or the username. So built into the way the data is stored, there is a sense of privacy around that blockchain, so to speak. We're talking about it like a uh, say chain, one after the next with the hash, you know, allowing for this, but Every time a transaction occurs, after a block's been added, it's difficult to go back and alter the contents of the block. So it creates its own hash, you know, and along with the hash, you know, it, it, of the blocks before, 
hashes codes are created by a math function that turns digital information into a string of numbers and letters. If the information is edited, well, then the code changes again. Automatically. By default, it's a secure way to string important pieces of data together. And of course, it's reliant on a particular type of technology that's out there. Now, we're not going to get really deep and techy. I think we got a little deep and techy just now. It's like having security on every aspect of the data that's secure there so that you could see the data read. If I were to send you something via a blockchain, you would be able to read it. But if if you had all the right information to decode it, but you wouldn't be able to alter it without it changing the nature of it itself. It sounds very meta. If you think about that, right, it kind of is built into itself, that security. That speaks to the fact that blockchain is both a simple idea and also a very complex idea to grasp at the same time. And that's probably one of the reasons why we haven't really covered a lot in this show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this article that that we link to goes into it a little bit deeper and it talks about blockchain and the origins of it with cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those go together. And it talks about public and private keys and and a variety of other information and and the pros, the cons, and the use, etc. I think way too much for us to go into in today's episode. For us, it's probably more important to start talking about the blockchain concept and how it can be adopted in healthcare. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, you've got another article here, Blockchain Adoption in Healthcare. This actually comes from beingcrypto.com. <laughs> Another great website. <laughs> yes, yes. B-E, like B-N, and then crypto, like cryptocurrency, I guess. But anyway, blockchain adoption in healthcare primed to explode new report finds. So we can go through a couple of things in here, but what they're talking about is a recent report that was issued by TMR Research points to a few prime movers in the healthcare sector for blockchain. So these are the usual suspects, as you would imagine, if you think about technology, IBM, Microsoft, a few others called like Hashed Health, Polkadot, GuardTime, iSolve, Jim, Black Pharma, and Patientory. Wow. We need to come up with our own name for a blockchain technology. As far as you know, I made up three quarters of those names. (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) And it says that in North America is going to experience that boost as well as Europe. But they say the real growth is occurring within Asia right now. The Asia Pacific region is really witnessing the highest rate of growth and adoption of, of this type of technology. And it outlines a couple of ways it will be implemented. So let's go through those one by one, Read So healthcare payers will find that blockchain-based networks will make their payments easier. So, I mean, that makes sense. We think about cryptocurrency, right, as a place that a lot of this was started, Bitcoin, for example. So you would assume that the payment-based mechanism is a prime suspect. And that kind of aligns with the fact that many financial industries are starting to look at blockchain as a way to do secure online financial transactions. Mm -hmm. So I think payment transactions on blockchain is a natural use case that that does come out. And yeah, sure, healthcare payers will benefit from that. Another one will be providers. And they say here that providers will be able to store securely confidential information on-chain. On-chain apparently is like a adjective, maybe, or adverb. On-chain. I love him. He's a rapper in Atlanta, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) 
on chain. But if you think about that, you know, we, we talk a lot about the security of a patient record of uh, HIPAA and PHI, et cetera. I think a lot of times when you think about it, the application of secure data, confidential data on blockchain, that's where people think about. There's probably a, a number of other confidential pieces of information that healthcare providers also want to store on chain. You would think so. The next one they point out here, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, again, would make sense, uh, will be able to transparently track the movement of their supplies with the help of live data recorded on a uh, distributed ledger. So again, kind of confidential information, depending on being able to track supplies and, uh, and things like that. Look at that trifecta that we just outlined, right? The first is financial information. Mm-hmm. The second is confidential information, you know, secure information. And the third is supply chain information. Yep. Those three things right there, which comprise major challenges that are occurring across the whole healthcare industry, from a payer perspective, a provider perspective, whatever it may be, there is a promise here that blockchain will solve for that. The article goes on to outline, though, that blockchain is still considered a little bit new. It is. I mean, it's very new because, again, we're just talking about this. It's been around, certainly. And and you've heard us talk about South by Southwest. I can remember probably two years ago now, blockchain was really big. It's South by a lot of blockchain panels and you had a lot of people going around and and claiming they knew what they were talking about. You know, you heard a lot of things like, I mean, I know what blockchain means, but I'm going to go to this panel. So, you know, to see if they know what they're talking about, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, it's still new and somewhat indicative to me of kind of where we are or how useful or how quickly this will be adopted that two years ago we were talking about this. And I'm still not sure that anybody's, I mean, we, we outline those use cases, but how realistic and how soon will that be? You know what I mean? Well, one of the last points of this article is they indicate an IDC European survey that was taken last June. And in it, they surveyed healthcare providers and only 44% of them have heard of blockchain. And it's only a serious consideration for about 12% of all health organizations surveyed. So a very small subset in the healthcare sector is experimenting and potentially adopting these types of solutions. So why don't we do this, Reed? After the break, why don't we come back and we talk through some, well, we found an article where uh, a professor talks about applications of blockchain, and then we can actually talk about the way blockchain is actually can be used in the coronavirus pandemic that we're facing right now, right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's talk about some, you know, what we're seeing kind of practical on the practical side. 
practical side as we talk about blockchain. I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense, but kind of real world, I guess, is maybe a better way to say that. And the first article that you have here from talkbusiness.net is entitled Blockchain Professor Shares Blockchain Application Examples and Future Options. So again, this is what is actually happening and being considered and things like that. So Dr. Dan Conway, I get this. This is great. He's the associate director and professor at the Blockchain Center of Excellence, the University of Arkansas, the BCE at the University of Arkansas. Uh, he said that the U.S. continues to lag behind other countries such as Estonia. Is that a real country? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, where the entire country runs on blockchain. What does that mean, first off, the entire country? So he goes into that a little bit. What, what all does he kind of talk about relative to, because can you imagine an entire country running on blockchain? It's hard enough to onboard Epic. <laughs> well, in Estonia, which uh, uh, admittedly is a smaller country, right? But <laughs> sure. uh, they use blockchain technology as an integral service provider for the government and state agencies. If you're familiar with Estonia, it has been described as a digital society, but most government services offer online and data integrity that is through blockchain technology. So they give some examples here. Citizens can use medical e-prescriptions, file taxes, or even buy a car online without going to like the DMV for vehicle registration. That sounds amazing. Did you just hear that noise? That's me packing to move to Estonia. <laughs> can you imagine... That's Anyway, don't even get me started. Okay. So one of his points in here, though, is that because blockchain does not require managers, there's a lower cost of utilization, right? So there's no need for people because every link in the chain is unique, secure, et cetera. It's interesting, right? I mean, there's less oversight. Of course, from now we're getting back to like between this and AI, this is how like the robots take over or something. What it refers to is the fact that we've built a lot of processes where there's people involved. And if you recall back to last week's episode when we were interviewing Manoj, he was talking about the credentialing system. Well, the actual company that's doing the blockchain on credentialing is who we're going to interview later on in, in this episode. But here's another example that this Dr. Conway, remember the Associate Director and professor of the Blockchain Center of Excellence, which I'm sure he says at every party he goes to. Oh, man. Can you imagine? That'd be amazing. <laughs> you think our jobs are hard to explain at church. Good grief. <laughs> anyway, he says the Ford Motor Company is using blockchain currently in its vehicles, with the technology helping the car know how to react in certain circumstances. That's interesting. He proposed that cars that are embedded with blockchain and windshields could potentially signal to the driver that it's okay to go through a stop sign because there's no other cars coming. Mm. Is this science fiction now? What are we talking about here? Oh, man, this is not good. This is like the guy that crashed his Tesla because he was playing video games on autopilot and stuff. So <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. But but you do see some of these features. Now, I'm not, I'm not claiming these are blockchain empowered, but some of the things like allowing cars to understand what's happening, you know, with the lane... Uh, change avoidance kind of stuff and, you know, the adaptive cruise control and, you know, those types of things. I do see, obviously, things like cars getting smarter and smarter. And so this seems to be a way that they do that. 
Another example he gives is a company called Jabil, J-A-B-I-L, who uses blockchain to protect its systems by giving access to only a trusted group. This prevents outside bad actors from uh, wreaking havoc on internal systems. And then he goes on to uh, explain that he has worked with a hospital who actually agreed to pay hackers that kind of hacked their system. But what they did is they implemented blockchain while they were reclaiming their data in that process to protect the system from future hacks. This is interesting. He said that the hackers were told if they bragged about their breach, their Bitcoin addresses would be turned over to federal investigators. Nice. And then he said the hospital used blockchain to monitor the underground sites to ensure the hackers kept their promise. Obviously, he concluded by saying negotiating with hackers and paying the fee is much cheaper than future lawsuits and federal fines. But there is a potential here for cybersecurity applications for blockchain, right? That is pretty crazy. Another example here, a company in Atlanta uses blockchain to verify identities of people who need health services but are afraid to use their real names and addresses. So he said that the company's mission was is to was to deliver care regardless of who needed it using blockchain for identity kept the people coming and ensured there was no way to trace their whereabouts. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that there's some sensitivity there, whether it's just something, I'm not trying to minimize this, but just on the embarrassment side of the equation uh, or otherwise that, you know, still allows people to get what they need and feel secure in doing so. That's a promise for health information exchanges for the future, you know, a potential use case. Before we wrap our part of the show here and go to the interview, Reed, let's talk about one other article we found about blockchain as a tool to combat coronavirus. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. We're all thinking about it. I mean, you know, conferences are being canceled or rescheduled because of this. So we found this article that actually talks about how blockchain can potentially be used in the, in the case of past epidemics or pandemics. So let's kind of go through a little bit of these use cases. And I think that a lot of these right now are more future state forward, right? They're not actually mm-hmm, happening. Mm-hmm. But I still think it, it, it also can help to illustrate the, the potential of blockchain. So this article comes from Cointelegraph.com, blockchain as a tool to combat coronavirus. So they talk about that certain stumbling blocks of past academics have still uh, not been solved. And while it's unrealistic to expect any country to ever be fully prepared, especially if something of this magnitude, there are some ways that we can improve and have the implementation, I guess, preparedness uh, through the use of blockchain solutions. So Uh, The first one they call out here is donation tracking. So donors can see where funds are most urgently needed and track their donations until they are provided with a verification that their donations have been received. So that's kind of interesting. Again, back to the financial transactions, right? I think that's an important use case here. The second one is around insurance claims. There's actually a company called Ant Financial that has a collective insurance company that is Zhang Haobao, I don't know if I said that right, Wow! but a blockchain-based collective claim-sharing platform with over 104 million users. One of the newest functions there is to process coronavirus claims, helping the firm to reduce paperwork and the need for back-and-forth document delivery to clinics. The point here is that blockchain can also mitigate the risk of infections from face-to-face contact and also reduce paperwork. So, As a platform, I think there's a lot of opportunity here, again, with sharing sensitive information back and forth between people. 
Uh, the next one they talk about, and we, we mentioned this earlier or early on, not necessarily specific to healthcare, maybe, uh, actually it's pharmaceuticals, but medical material supply chain tracking. Uh, they call out a couple of folks in here, a couple of different uh, organizations uh, that have launched blockchain-based platforms that enable users to trace the demand and the supply uh, chains of medical supplies. So it includes uh, record tracking, academic prevention uh, materials such as masks, gloves, and other protective gear. So I guess it allows you to more cohesively and efficiently get the stuff where it needs to go. This dramatic gap between supply and demand currently is leading to a sharp rise in counterfeit production. Of masks. And so I guess this is a, a way you can alleviate that a way to kind of manage that you're actually getting the right medical equipment, the right medical and the supplies to the right places and not, you know, be hijacked by all these counterfeits. The last example, and again, this is another example that is a blockchain company that currently allows researchers, scientists, and journalists to easily understand and follow the spread of the coronavirus. It also uh, can be used to uh, start to establish trends over time. So they've already implemented this data from the CDC and the World Health Organization, and it's making sure that information can be shared, but not manipulated and changed. Back to you know the fact that blockchain is by nature very secure. So they're sharing information that can be that has integrity. Last one here, which I think is uh, really interesting, is uh, the ability for, again, it's a, it's a payment mechanism, but cross-border payments. Uh, so they talk about that the United Nations uh, World Food Program introduced blockchain technology for products, things like being able to uh, distribute aid to vendors in Jordan. The interesting piece about this is uh, it managed to reduce bank transfer fees by almost 98%. So through this, it would mean that multinational nonprofit organizations potentially could save tens of millions of dollars that could be ultimately allocated to the aid itself versus the administrative side. These are actual companies that are applying this data right now, and the the potential to use this data and parse this data for a much greater cause, there's so much potential here. I think that as we look forward, Reed, over the next couple of years, we're going to see that blockchain adoption is going to grow within not only health systems and health providers, but in HIT applications and the transfer of data through payers, et cetera. I think there's a huge upside here to blockchain. Yeah, I mean, absolutely there is. I think by just the sheer idea that from the payment and supply chain side of nothing else, Allowing for security, we see the cybersecurity piece is continuing to grow. And so anything that can add in security can add in uh, or aid in the payment side, the management side, uh, certainly is things people will continue to invest in. Certainly a lot of the big names, like we mentioned earlier, IBM and Microsoft already have. And I think we'll just continue to see that grow. This is a good point where we could put a pin in it. I think I learned a lot about blockchain just talking it through with you today, Reed. How do you feel? Where would you assess your your level of comfort with understanding and explaining blockchain now? Better than when we started the episode. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think some of it depends on obviously use case and the ability to be able to articulate, well, how does this impact that particular organization? Well, why don't we turn to a gentleman by the name of Charlie Lafayette, who I've recently uh, interviewed. He runs a company that actually is using blockchain technology in helping to manage 
actual overhead in the healthcare workforce itself. And there's actual use case that he'll talk about with his company. And we'll do that right after this break. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Charlie Lowheed, who is actually the, the principal, the owner, the, the founder of a company called Actual. Is that is that correct, Charlie? Am I introducing you the right way? That's right. I'm uh, one of the co-founders and, and one of the investors. So we've got some great group of investors and, and I happen to be one of them. So Awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today. But before we jump in, a lot of people listening in may not know about you, your background, and your company, Actual. Do you uh, mind kind of sharing a little bit about your backstory? Yeah, I would love to, Chris. Thanks for having me today, by the way. I guess you would characterize me as a serial entrepreneur. This is my fifth startup. I've been doing this since I was a teenager. And during that journey, you spend some time in the world of entrepreneurialism and then some time in the world of large corporate, because in my case, we were lucky enough to be acquired by some large corporations. And so I've had an opportunity to kind of see from a lot of different vantage points just uh, how innovation occurs in the U.S. And, and elsewhere to some degree. And it's been a really fun experience. But as I mentioned, fifth startup, fourth commercial startup. I was involved uh, and still am with a nonprofit big data startup that focuses on understanding, in some degree, the future of work and how we can use big data to develop a more inclusive economy, and that's called the Unified Labs. You know, I've been lucky. I've been able to work with some amazing people over the years, uh, people that had many ways of taken us under their wing to teach us about their industry. We've entered some industries that we had no experience with in the past. And to some degree, we saw that as probably more of an advantage than a disadvantage. I mean, I've had the opportunity to be at this intersection of technology and sector revolutions, whether that was broadband and telecommunications and, and to big data and other areas, the most recent startup before Actual was a company called Explorus that we knew nothing about healthcare at the time, but recognized that there were a lot of challenges as it relates to acquiring and storing and managing data in a way that protects patient privacy, but at the same time unlocks that data for the potential of helping people and and, and reducing costs and care. And Explorus grew quite a bit over the years. We actually spun some of the technology out of Cleveland Clinic and uh, grew that to be a company that by the time uh, 2005 rolled around, we had about 400 health systems across the U.S. and amassed about 65 million patients worth of data. You know, now we're really focusing on, to some degree, the future of work. And that was part of why we decided to form Actual. So we just saw a big challenge for many, especially regulated industries, in dealing with human capital and how to effectively understand the assets around human capital, uh, but also how to effectively deploy it and do it in a way that is safe and effective and streamlined. And so a lot of what we have done is focused on that. We look at proof as being something that's extremely expensive. It's necessary in every regulated industry that you not just take someone's word for something, that you double check 
with a verifying authorized source. And in healthcare, it's all about credentialing. Credentialing requires that you not only take in a lot of forms that a physician might fill out as they, as they start a new position or even on a regular ongoing renewal basis, they also need to be able to verify with each one of those entities that that information is indeed correct. And that's a process today that takes 90 to 120 days on average to do. We can't afford to operate in that way. It's, it means limited access to care for patients. And from a bottom line perspective, it's very expensive for health systems to have to deal with that. You know, one of the things that I've I noticed from your background is that utilizing is that you have this thread of like utilizing technology in such a way where organizations can kind of leverage and see opportunities within this. And and with actual, you're really focusing on optimizing human capital within the healthcare delivery channel. If you look at healthcare today, about eighty percent of it is delivered by people. The other 20% are, are drug therapies and devices and whatnot, but about 80% of it involves a human being. And with the shortages, both on the nursing side as well as the physician side, you've got an aging population. I talk about this perfect storm that's happening in healthcare. You've got demand rising because people are getting older, they're living longer. But in addition to that, people are consuming healthcare different than they used to. It's always interesting to see the parallels to other industries. Go back 25, 30 years, and you'll see that banking and finance dealt with the same issue. Most financial services were consumed in a bank branch or within brick and mortar. And that certainly is the way that healthcare is today, but that's not what healthcare consumers are necessarily asking for. They're saying, bring it to my mobile device, bring it to my PC, bring it to my place of work, bring it to my assisted living facility make it digital. The problem is, is to do that, you have to ensure that the individuals that you deploy to those points of care are qualified to practice in those points of care. And that's where credentialing comes in. And so that's why it's just so incredibly important. Maybe not all that sexy, but if we don't solve this problem, we won't see the kind of advancements that I think all of us as consumers want to see in healthcare. And that really speaks to the fact that many times when people hear about technology coming, kind of coming into the healthcare delivery process, they sometimes are threatened. They hear about like chatbots kind of uh, coming in and maybe taking over for the call center, that sort of thing. In this particular case, you're really looking at streamlining a, a part of the process that is not sexy for sure, but it consumes a lot of that capital. And it's actually built on a backend uh, technology that a lot of people have heard a lot about and maybe they need a little demystification about what that is. And that's blockchain. Is that right? Yeah. Blockchain is something that I would tell you, we spent some time and effort and, and some scrutiny to make sure that as we looked at the different types of technology would be necessary to enable this, we weren't shoehorning any kind of one technology into, into, into a problem. With a lot of new and exciting technologies, you tend to do that. The technologists sort of it's a shiny object. They're really excited about it. They want to dig into it. They want to try it. We all have to resist that. That said, if you look at the problem of credentialing, and this is whether you're a physician or a nurse or an airline pilot or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever it might be, the reality is you can't just take someone's word for it. You need to verify that the credentials and the experience that they profess is actually true. And to do that, You want to look at a technology that provides the ability to, number one, 
have a degree of immutability, meaning it cannot be tampered with once a fact is stated or a proof is stated by an organization or a person, you know that that has not been tampered with. You also want to know that it came from the right person. So you want to know that this proof that has not been tampered with came from the university in question. And that's something blockchain technology and the encryption algorithms and functions around it are really well suited to support. In addition to that, the thing that we like about blockchain is that with certain types of implementations, those that apply standards like W3C, which is a standard for interoperability for credentials so you can pass them between parties, the portability factor of it brings to the forefront an opportunity for individuals now to take a much more active role in managing their digital identity and their digital sovereignty or self-sovereignty, if you will. And that we think is really important. This technology provides the capability to not only allow other third parties to validate an audit that proofs actually came from the institutions where they're authorized to come from, they haven't been tampered, but it also gives individuals the ability to pass those around freely, reducing a lot of the friction that we see today in the marketplace. This actually then gives an, an ability for people that are working within the healthcare industry that traditionally have been limited by having to have the secure regulated data between who they are as an individual, like a physician or a nurse or whatever. And now that they have this platform where they can actually freely start to embrace some of the new trends around where they want to be employed, is that correct? Yeah, that's true. And I think to a large degree, if you look at the U.S. healthcare worker, and we're seeing this in other parts of the world as well, you're seeing a lot more demand for autonomy and flexibility over their career. It used to be you stayed at the same place for decades. We all know that that's no longer the case. In fact, your career in many way, ways will reshape about every seven to 10 years. You're doing something differently. You have with this the need to constantly collect attributes and assets around your education, your experience, your good, your references, your certifications, your licensing. There's a lot of different components to this. Providing the ability for individuals to store and manage that in all in one place and present it to organizations in a way that they know that it's for real. It's not just attested to by the individual, it's kind of like LinkedIn that's verified. When you know that kind of thing, we think that that reduces a lot of the friction. If you just look at the economics within healthcare today, your average physician is able to bill for about $7,500 a day in services. Now that varies. Some pediatricians are usually on the lower end and surgeons might be on the higher end, but that's about the average. But if you think about it, if you're a health system and you're barely operating, maybe just a little bit above zero on your profit margins, which health systems need to be financially healthy in order to serve their communities. If that's where you are, you really can't afford to wait the average of 100 days to bring on a physician who's practically ready to provide care in that community. 100 days times $7,500 a day is $750,000. This adds up fast. And we always talk about trillions in the healthcare spend in the U.S., but the way that we start eating away at the one-third of every dollar in healthcare that's spent on administrative costs, and in many cases, administrative waste, is to start looking at technologies like this that can close those gaps 
and actually in many ways create a more safe and accurate environment for verifying them. You know, this kind of marries sort of the trends that we're seeing with this sort of on-demand economy that's out there. And it's, you know, it's happened in many different places, you know, streaming programming through like Netflix or whatever, VRBO, Uber, that sort of thing. Now what you're doing is you're actually creating this marketplace, if I'm understanding this correctly, where you can actually now put up information, verifiable, authentic information about yourself that allows you to be transferable in a whole new way. Is, is, am I reading this right? I mean, am I interpreting this correctly? We all want to have portability within our careers. Now, that doesn't mean we want to leave where we are. We might be completely happy. If they're granted this kind of information by their employees that includes everything in someone's digital CV and how that accumulates over time, you have a always live, always active record where you now know the capabilities and the assets that individuals have that they can bring to different work settings. As an organization, you can be a lot more nimble. So in other words, as a healthcare system looks at ways that it can creatively meet patient demand in its own backyard and outside its own backyard, particularly around things like telehealth and digital medicine, be able to have a fast and accurate inventory of your workforce. It's your most important asset especially when they consent to that, which is one of the, again, the things about blockchain that's really important is the, is the high degree of consensus that is enforced to the model. You create a win-win situation between the employer and the employee that, again, we think will be a catalyst towards a lot of these new services and new ways of thinking as it relates to how we do work. Right now, you're you're providing the service among a healthcare organization and the actual workforce, right? Those those physicians, those credentialed uh, em- employees that are, are aligned with them. To me, naturally, there seems like an extension. Like this, suddenly can be a, a workforce that can be accessed by consumers directly. Or am I getting too far in front of my skis on this one? No, I don't think you are. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years years ago, we never would have thought about just jumping in some stranger's car. And for some reason, if it was painted yellow, we felt good about it. <laughs> uh, but you, know, you look at where things are with Uber and, uh, and Upwork and, and so many of these other gig economy models that have flourished. They flourish because people demand and expect both on the employer side, employee side and consumer side, this kind of flexibility. Now, the thing about that is we all want to make sure that the people that we are hiring, uh, whether it's on a short contract basis or a long term, have all the skills and don't have any things that from an adverse perspective, we wouldn't want to hire. We want to know that right away. We think this technology in many ways reduces those risks that we all know need to be managed because we all know that there's, you know, there've been issues. And so we want to be able to address that. So I think as, you know, from an economic standpoint, this is, again, what we've always tried to focus on are the things that are true enablers. And probably most importantly, of those things that you enable, uh, you're solving thousand dollar problems or million dollar problems, or, or hopefully a billion dollar problems. And that's where you, you can really advance the technology quickly because you get the support of the the economy, as well as investors behind that advancement. Is this restricted to just the United States? Or, I mean, blockchain is an international, well, I mean, I guess the technology itself is is commutable across borders. Do you see the opportunity as being something that's greater than just the United States? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you just look at healthcare, right? Uh, you have the similar challenges in, in the UK and Europe. We have a shortage of, of healthcare workers. And I think the thing that people often also don't think about when they think about healthcare workers, many times people think about the physicians and the doctors and the surgeons. They make up you know, roughly 900,000 of them in the U.S., but there's eight and a half million people performing some kind of healthcare work in the U.S. today. And the reality is it's still not enough, right? And you look at the future of work and we wonder with all this automation and all this displacement, what happens next? What happens when people begin to lose their job? Well, one thing that is fairly difficult to automate and robotize, if you will, is care of other humans. And today, this is an opinion, but I, I don't think we pay those people enough, we pay expenses, right? Because when we don't take care of healthcare, when we don't put the right resources towards health and human services, it costs society in many other ways. And I think over time, the more we can think about how do we take individuals that maybe didn't make a career or didn't consider a career in healthcare, and maybe they'd never get, they never want to be go, go to med school and become a doctor, but can still participate in healthcare transformation at some level of care, appropriate caregiving and have credentials around it, that could be really exciting and empowering. And so, you know, as we look at this, I think for me, one of the exciting things, Chris, is that in our last company, we did big data in healthcare and that helped us understand patterns and trends around treatments and, and how they work from a clinical efficacy standpoint, how they work from a financial standpoint. This is something that's a little different than that. You know, again, I talk about these Forrest Gump moments. We're sort of right in the middle of this where you say, oh my gosh, we really have an opportunity to affect some exciting change in the market. It's hard. Many of these things, people scratch their head and say, why hasn't it been done yet? It's because it's hard, but you've got a combination of technology, demand, economic constraints that are in essence are creating a critical mass that we believe it's going to happen pretty fast. We talk a lot about you know, you're creating your own data footprint. And, you know, we, we do that everywhere we go. And you earlier in this interview, you mentioned LinkedIn. This almost sounds like the, your CV is now going to become an important part of who you are. And the biggest part of your digital footprint is, is that fair to say? It's hard to argue that your resume or CV isn't the most important document you have. That is what paves the way forward for your livelihood and your ability to participate in an economy. So it's incredibly important. And, and again, we think making it more accessible, but at the same time, offering the ability for people to control who sees that information, when and how, is really going to be important as this rapid transformation occurs. I mean, in effect, you're creating the ultimate LinkedIn killer. You know, I don't know. I mean, LinkedIn is a great network. It's amazing. <laughs> if anything, we're trying to learn from them, yeah. right? But clearly, again, in any regulated industry, unless someone uh, is able to have a third party verify that directly, it, it ain't proof. And so those are the things I think are going to be really important that people just need to recognize. And it's a bridge that is used to be too far to cross. It isn't anymore. Uh, and the economics are there that we can do it. So, you know, we're excited about being able to at least be one of the organizations that, that 
that pioneer that. I was slightly in jest, but slightly not because, I mean, ultimately to have something that's verifiable, I, I could see a lot of value in that myself being, a, you know, an able-bodied worker in this space for sure. When I hear about uh, this type of technology, implementing this doesn't happen that quickly. It isn't like suddenly this is going to be available to everybody within the healthcare space. Is there a, a deliberate approach or a way that you'll see this rolling out within our industry? Well, first off, it's certainly deliberate. It's also mm-hmm. expensive. <laughs> yeah, I, I think people don't realize that. Listen, blockchain is a great technology, but it's 20% of the underlying technology within our business. And, and probably the thing that people misunderstand the most is the complexity that exists today, especially in regulated industries, where they're, for a new technology that gets introduced, you have to be mindful and almost build that bridge from the future to the past. Case in point, much of what we do in using the blockchain technology and some of the digital credential technology is create this, again, this immutable, tamper-proof, digitally signed record of proof. And what we've been testing, because we're in the middle of three pilots right now with three different health systems, so we're learning what a physician experiences, we're, we're seeing their facial expressions. What we're learning is, is Despite the fact that we now have this digital asset, which is super secure, it can be managed, it's portable, all these great things, people still want to see the original document. They always still want to see, show me a copy of the diploma. Now, interestingly enough, that PDF is extremely hackable. Many files are hackable, I should say. But in this case, what we found is to really be effective, you have to bridge the gap, particularly when you have... I mentioned eight and a half million healthcare workers in the U.S. You have, for every three of them, you have at least one administrative person who's managing that stuff. And they need some time to wrap their brains around how some of this works. And a lot of the technology in our releases, we've learned to bridge that gap, let them visually see their diploma or their license, but also obviously the most important cryptographic component or element of that is the, is the credential itself. You know, that's something that's really important. Also for us, we see three distinct stakeholders in the digital credentialing world. And this is true, whether it's digital credentialing in healthcare or aviation or financial services or education, you name it. Number one, you have the institutions that are able to issue the proof, the credential, digitally sign it medical schools and former employees and medical license bureaus, et cetera. You have the credential holder themselves that gets those issued too. And then you have the subscribers. Essentially, those are usually the employers where the holder with their consent allows the subscriber to view that information based on the terms that they agree about. Building this three component network is tricky. We have a a whole year set aside just to do pilots and learn because, again, you've got the bridge to the old world that you have to make sure you maintain. And you also have to think about, in in, a way, get in the hearts and heads of those three stakeholders to understand what's important to them. If I'm in medical school, not only am I struggling on my basic day-to-day operating costs, I'm also having to address the needs of an industry that has to verify over and over and over again the same fact that a doctor graduated from that medical school. Now today, 
because these aren't reusable and not portable, if a doctor applies at five different hospitals, that medical school will get five different phone calls or five different outreaches asking to verify that this person has gotten a medical degree there. That's extremely expensive to those organizations. So we look at this and say, let's create a once and done. That's a permanent proof. Short of going back in a time machine, you're not going to change it. So let's create a model where they can just once verify that proof, they're done, and now it can be referenced over and over and over again. That reusability, we think, is going to be really important to dropping their cost over time. Earlier, you said that this isn't like the most sexiest of uh, technology in the space, but it sounds like it's tremendously important. And Charlie, you have a lot of great information, and I'm so glad that you were able to spend some time with me today to talk a little bit about it on your website, actual.com, A-X-U-A-L-L.com, by the way, for people listening in, you have some a re- some really great resources, including some roundtables on the future of healthcare that I'll direct some of our listeners to listen into. But if people listening and want to learn a little bit more about you, what are some other ways they can reach you online? Yeah, so we're active on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. So encourage us to go there. We post a lot there. We engage in a lot of discussion and and in some cases, virtual panels with regards to those. We can also, you can reach out to us at info at actual.com. Always love to hear perspective from folks and learn like everybody else. So we're, we're, we're excited to be part of that discourse. Well, I'm excited that you were had opportunity and some time today to share with our listeners some of the important stuff that you're doing and, 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 and how you're addressing some of, the, some of the most significant things that are impacting our industry today. Charlie, I will also link to your uh, personal LinkedIn account on our show notes. So everything that you mentioned will link in our show notes, including your personal LinkedIn account if people want to connect with you. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate uh, you, you coming on and sharing uh, some great information with us. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Special thanks to Charlie for coming on, uh, talking about blockchain. This has been a topic long in the making. We've probably just drug our feet on it and finally had to actually do a show about blockchain, but it was good. It was fun and, and appreciate him actually coming on and, and sharing some knowledge as well. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Touchpoint.health is the website. Upcoming conferences. Again, a little bit in flux. Uh, we, we saw where the, the HEMS conference has been canceled. Certainly the uh, Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit in Las Vegas, Nevada, first part of April uh, as well. And uh, Chris, I know you got a couple of things coming up. Yeah, I do. Based on how every, how the world is reacting to conferences, the Minnesota Hospital Association Conference, I'm going to be speaking at that. Uh, so that's here in, in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Also in May, NESHCO, that conference, I'll be keynote speak, speaking there. And then lastly, I will also be presenting at the keynote at Mayo Clinic's Social Media Virtual Summit in partnership with Shishmed, which is going to be in June, I think. Right, Reed? Isn't that what it is? That sounds right. Certainly, we'll we'll get all this added to our weekly uh, TPS report, which is uh, again the e newsletter comes out first thing Monday mornings. If you haven't signed up, you can do so at Touchpoint.health. Anyway, a few aggregated news stories from around the industry by our show host, as well as uh, links to these conferences in different places that you'll find us in real life. All right. Recommendations. I'll actually go first today. I, I don't know that I've got a real good feedback on this yet, but I'm trying a new podcast app. It's called Breaker. 
B-R-E-A-K-E-R. It's got kind of a cool interface to it on the discovery tab, which is something kind of neat. It shows hot episodes. And so you can kind of scroll down and see, you know, you'll see some of the usual suspects like the daily, for example. Uh, It also has a category for under 20 minutes as far as like what's popular right now. Society and culture, news, business, And when you subscribe and things like that, there's a social component to it where you can like comment on the episodes and and things like that. And so, you know, kind of an interesting app. I'm always looking for like new apps, new experiences uh, from like a UI experience type thing. And so Breaker. So check it out. That is awesome. I'm going to I definitely do want to check that out because I'm starting to get a little bit tired of my current podcast app. So thanks for that recommendation. I'll check it out. I'm going to recommend a book today, Reed. Um, you know, this is in the ongoing, uh, a couple episodes ago, I mentioned going to the library and checking out books and, you know, instead of reading online, the book I'm reading right now is called Health Consuming. It's by a good friend of the podcast, Jane Saracen Khan. It's a great book where she actually gets into the healthcare consumer and what that actually means. So, you know, the, the point is, is that healthcare costs are a mainstream issue for Americans now. And she talks about the history of consumerism in healthcare and how health, uh, patients have be- morphed into these consumers. And they're now also the payers of healthcare. And the book, it's a really great read. You can find it on her website, healthconsuming.com. Um, it's also available on Amazon, it's on Kindle, etc., and also in your library, so to speak. This book is really good, really relevant and salient, and kind of resonates with some of the topics that we've been talking about, Reed. So it's, it's comforting to know that other people are like-minded as to what you and I have been ranting about for three years. <laughs> in book format. In book format. <laughs> well, awesome. Good show. Interesting topic. I'm sure we will revisit this uh, in a number of uh, different kind of vantage points in coming episodes. But certainly appreciate you tuning in, telling a friend, rating, reviewing, subscribing, streaming, however you get our shows. It is all very much appreciated. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we will see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.